I can assure you for that I'm the only European guy that ever have seen one live. And also I am the 15th of non-local people that have seen one in the wild. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to number, I don't even remember, of From the Ground Up. I don't have Melissa here to look up the number for me so unfortunately i'm just going to assume and um it's like 66 or something but um thank you guys so much for coming uh little things to get out of the way obviously we have t-shirts for sale poorcitypythons.com every time you buy a t-shirt the proceeds go to helping us put on this podcast helping us host the podcast that kind of thing also, we have Amazon links in the description, so all you have to do is click on the link, shop as you usually would, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So I guess I should probably explain it's just going to be me today on the podcast with Casper. We're doing a little bit earlier because he is... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's all good. It's... um. We've been trying for a while to get someone international on the show, but we were always like, oh, that obviously conflicts with time and stuff like that because i think where casper is it's almost like 8 30 and it's about 1 30 here so yeah so we were just trying to work that out so we decided to do it on sunday i didn't realize it was mother's day yesterday oh me neither i feel bad actually (laughs) yeah like i don't know if that's a thing where you are but but my girlfriend she remembered her mother's day so she uh, made me feel bad about it, so but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I don't know, we didn't really think that one out. Anyway, we're here on Monday. Uh, Melissa's over teaching the future of America how to be three to six year olds right now, and we're at home hanging out. So, Casper, uh, could you give us a little intro about yourself, where you're from, and what you work with? Okay, so I am from Denmark. It's uh, it's the southernmost country in Scandinavia. I don't know if you've heard about it. You've probably seen Vikings, the show Vikings. I don't know. Um, so Danish people are literally the true Vikings along with the Norwegian and the Swedish people. So we're up in the north of Europe, and it's pretty darn cold here in the winter. But right now it's actually summer, and it's, it's very nice. It's actually very nice. So thanks to uh, global warming, we can now enjoy a, a full summer. <laughs> but I am, um, I'm 28 years old. I've been keeping reptiles since I was probably 10 or 12 years old. I can't really remember. It's been so long now. Um, my interest came almost just like anybody else. I loved dinosaurs when I was a kid. But the first memory I have of a reptile or amphibian encounter was actually not very um, positive. I was in I was in Florida with my parents, and we were visiting one of the alligator farms there, and they had this uh, display with a coal snake and some poison dart frogs. And I was not very old; I was probably five or six years old. And 
after I saw these uh, coral snakes in the, on the display and uh, the sign said venomous, I was instantly terrified of this snake. And I had on the whole trip, which was around a month, I had nightmare every night. So that's probably my first encounter with, uh, <laughs> with, with reptiles in general. But uh, it quickly grew into a fascination rather than a, you know, something I was terrified of. So that was pretty positive in the end. And here in Denmark, we only have two species of snakes, um, and none of them are, are lethal. It's one, one venomous snake. It's called just a, a adder, a European adder, and it's not, it's not dangerous really. It's of course it's dangerous, but it's not. It's not deadly. It's and then we have more equivalent to our like cotton mouth or copperhead. Yeah, exactly. It's it's even less dangerous than that. <laughs> it's like super uh, super tiny and yeah, small venom glands. Not really, not really potent. I think the venom is actually pretty potent, but the amount of venom they inject into you is so small that you know. I'd rather get bit by one of those than a dog or a cat for that matter. So, and then we have a colubrid, which were, which are all over the place. So when I was a kid, when I came home from that trip, I was fascinated by those after learning about the snakes in Denmark, not being dangerous, like the coral snakes, for instance. And we had a lot of those in my, my parents' backyard. So I was catching those along with the, the toads and the frogs and all that sort of stuff. And, then my interest in, in animals just grew from there and I kept all sorts of stuff like guinea pigs, hamsters, all the classics. And uh, I loved animals, so I started working in a pet store when I was fairly young. I can't remember how young, but I did it for, you know, just for fun. I was not paid. It was just a thing I went to once in a while just to help out and... Um, they had aquariums and terrariums there, and I was quickly very fascinated with fish. So I got a big aquarium back home, and um, suddenly all the fish died because one of my uh, family members, by accident, overfed all the fish. He just, you know, took the jar with all the food, just poured it down the aquarium. So the next day, all the fish were dead, and. I figured it was way too expensive to start up a new cichlid tank. It was Malawi cichlids back then. So I wanted something that I could fit in the tank and it was not too hard. So I actually got a boa constrictor uh, as, a, as a snake back then and it just grew from there. And yeah. So when did you first like jump into, you know, rare stuff? You started with boas, kind of where'd you go from there? I think my. My next snakes were corn snakes, king snakes, all sorts of colubrids, North American colubrids. Then I moved into some Asian stuff, and I moved from there into uh, giant Indonesian pythons, um, like reticulated pythons, Burmese pythons. And from there, I moved into uh, carpet pythons. Mm. And uh, I was having a point where I had carpet pythons, then I got some black-headed pythons, and then I just, you know, climbed up the ladder from there uh, slowly, of course. Um, I wanted to breed stuff first, you know, sell the offspring, hold back some, continue to breed, and then I slowly moved into, you know, the more rarer stuff. 
along the road. So what's the timeline as far as like, how old were you when you first started breeding, you know, something like a, a retic or a blackhead, you know, these larger constrictors. I never, I never bred Burmese pythons or retics uh, because in 2003, there was a ban in Denmark that said that you can no longer have venomous, venomous stuff. You can no longer keep crocodilians. You can no longer keep like this huge uh, monetalicid species and you can no longer keep the big snakes. So the rock pythons got illegal both the Natalensis and the uh, sape. And then you have the reticulated pythons, the Burmese pythons, the Indian pythons, and the anacondas. Um, so those were illegal in 2003. And my animals were far from adults at that point. So I just, you know, sold them off to uh, to the neighboring countries. So I had to uh, to ask my mother to uh, to drive me to Sweden to, uh, to sell my, uh, my big snakes. But um, yeah. How how big of a deal is that? Do you have to have some type of paperwork to go across, you know, the country lines? It was yeah. We we need we need the CITES papers so or a a British statement. So if you just have a British statement saying that it's blah 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 second third fourth generation uh, his captive bred or whatever is it's good enough so it's it's pretty easy in europe with that it's not very uh no we don't have many rules especially in denmark we just have those sharp rules saying we cannot house these large reptiles but everything else is pretty much just you know straightforward so it's it's very easy actually Okay. Yeah. I always figured it was a little bit more difficult than here, but, um, I guess, I guess it's pretty, it's, it's not as difficult as it is in, in the States. There's a lot of stuff going on. I've been following for quite some years and I think we're, we're quite lucky in Europe with the, uh, with the, you know, the controlling of the animals and stuff. We got some bands pretty early on. So now they, they don't want to, you know, go after us because we have no incidents with big constrictors or, you know, dangerous reptiles hurting people. So there's not a lot of that stuff in the media, which is pretty good, of course. Right. It seems like, I mean, I've heard complaints of people that there's not uh, commercial infrastructure there as far as businesses. Like here we have rack manufacturers, cage manufacturers, all these different companies to choose from. So yes. how is it? how is it different over there? Well, we, we don't have we don't have big companies like Freedom Breeders and stuff. It's mostly guys making racks. You can see this rack actually right here. So this is just a you uh, a vision vision box standard rack. But but manufacturers like this is it's more on a you know on a an extra base. It's not their entire. Thing. it's just for fun or something extra to do like a little side business exactly so it's it's not very huge and we it's actually quite expensive as well so racks here and, and caging you can't find professional stuff but it's it's far from between and it's you know we mostly use people use exoterra or stuff like that sumac glass tanks i'm guessing that stuff is pretty heavily imported from here as far as uh, okay. yeah. you have the big yeah. companies we got a lot of the sumed stuff and all the exoterra stuff so yeah now pretty good. from what i i believe you've been you've been over for tinley correct yeah i, I was in tinley last october 
and I will be there next time as well. <laughs> so, so what differs from a giant show here in the United States to something like the ham show over there? First off, there's much less imported animals in Timley Park. Um, when I was there, it was pretty much only capture bred stuff and a few imports in between. And in the ham show, it's like 50-50 of imports and, and captive bread stuff. So you see a lot of Indonesian stuff. You see a lot of North American, South American stuff uh, that's imported. And, of course, wild-caught or farm bread, you know. Yeah. And uh, so you see a lot of, a lot of not dead animals, but, you know, in bad quality or bad shape. But you, you again, then you again, uh, you see a lot of rare stuff. So it's very different in that matter. And also space requirement for animals in the States is, is much, much larger. So in, in Europe, we have these, you know, all the, all the people cramp the animals into small tanks. There's just tons of animals everywhere. Um, the distance from, a, you know, a booth to another booth is, is not very, you know, they're right next to each other. So it's very cramped. It's, it's almost like a goat market if, if you want to, you know, if you take the ham show, it's it's really bad there. It's uh, it's the world's largest uh, show, reptile show, but it's I would say Tinley is one hundred times better in my opinion. That's um, that's really weird because I've heard in the UK in particular, like the standards are super high for their shows as far yeah. as like the snakes UK. need to have a certain amount of room and they can't see each other and weird funky shit. Yeah, but not in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've reading like things like the lizard king or stolen world it seems like or like you see like all of our blackheads and olive pythons come from like swiss lines in quotations from like a swiss zoo or like come from germany or something why do you know what this backstory is and why so many exported like australian and indonesian stuff come through germany or Switzerland or uh, the you know Germany as a as a country was the biggest country regarding herpetoculture uh, in the beginning. So that was like the prime place where you, as an interested person, reptiles had to go to to get the reptiles you wanted. So all the the big all the, all the not the breeders but all the big reptile guys back in the day they always had connections to uh, to Germany because there was a lot of private people. The private sector there was big. Along with the zoo, there um, they have a lot of stuff. So Germany has always been this kind of central for you know smuggled shit for that matter, <laughs> uh, all sorts of stuff of rare stuff. Mm. Also, also the rules are not you know as hard as the other countries. So and it's fairly easy with all the borders, all the countries like lining up to the country. It's like right in the middle of Europe. So it's very easy to, you know, just get through the round. Yeah. But I've actually, I've actually this past year, I've decided not to go to uh, the ham show anymore because I don't really like the, uh, the effect it has on people and how the animals are treated. So I don't go to that show anymore. Yeah. And do you think, is the culture different as far as here? We want everything captive bred. Is it there? Like just no one gives a shit. No, no people does give a shit, but just then again, just like anybody else in, in, uh, in the States, when you see, uh, you know, 
wildcard emerald tree bower and a captive bred emerald tree bower and you have to pay like twice the price right then you want to go for then most people go for the cheap one um because they don't know any better so most of the stuff here is at the shows are wild caught because the professional breeders that do breed these things they don't sell their animals in these shows they know the customers they sell to don't come to these shows so therefore they're not there and they are more quietly secretive so it's not a place to go if you want to catch a bit stuff yeah, this sure. is that's something that you can see here too as well. You know, Tinley is different because that's a you know the gold standard, but um, yeah. we see plenty of that over here as well. Now, when did you first um, when did you first get into Bolins? I guess most people know you from Bolins. So, um, when did you first get Bolins? Um, I got my first Bolins in two thousand and ten, actually. Um, that's eight years ago. So you were only 20 years old. I'm 28 years old. I just look like a kid right now. Um, because I just shaved my beard off actually. Um, normally I have a, I have a beard, but I'm 28 years old. So I got my first bones when I was 20 years old. Yeah. So I saved up a lot. I sold a lot of my hot nose snakes back then. I had a lot of morphs. I was breeding the colubrids a lot. So I sold all of those off, and I bought a pair of uh, of uh, you know the farm bread stuff, the farm bread bones. And did so, you yeah. did you buy those as babies? Yeah, I got those as babies as uh, as red neonates, and then I grew them up to uh, to adults myself. And how long did it take for you to consider pairing them up? I first paired them up after six years of age. Do you think that that's a reasonable uh, like rate of maturity? I think I compared to other people because I was doing almost what Frederick did. You know, Frederick from Sweden is a good friend of mine. And um, I've been talking a lot with him over these years. And I know for a fact that he fed his snakes very sparingly, like much more sparingly than anybody in the U.S. And his snakes were copulating when they were younger, but he first got eggs when they were around, I think they were eight years old or maybe older. And they are not big at all. They were not big back then. Um, so I just did like, just the same as he did. I fed them very sparingly. I kept them super lean. I kept them hungry. They were not tame. Um, they were very food orientated. And I kept them... I would say now I kept them probably too cold as well. Um, yeah, but but it took six years before they, they showed any interest in each other. And yeah, I had them for one season, two seasons when they were breeding. And then I, yeah, I went through a, a, a rough time in my, uh, in my life and I sold everything off back then, uh, including all the Bolins. So that was uh, pretty sad. So were you able to get copulations, but weren't exactly to get the cycle correct in that amount of time? I were cycling them all the, I actually cycled every snake I had. I had 10 bones at one point. I cycled every, each and every animal, um, even the babies every year. So they, even as babies went through this, you know, colder month or whatever. And I, I had an air conditioning in my room. So I was always keeping them cold at night. 
um, like year round because in Indonesia and especially in the mount in the you know in the in the mountain areas where they live, um, it's cold every night. It's not seasonally. It's it's you know the same temperatures almost every night. It's very foggy. It's very cold. It's very moisture. There's a lot of moisture. The uh, the humidity is super high, but they're actually also very dry. So I was trying to mimic how they were living. And I just did the same as Frederick. I kept them very cold, fed them sparingly, and I kept a humidifier in the room. And I never sprayed the animals because I found that they didn't like to get sprayed on and they didn't like to soak in the water bowl. So they had this small water bowl and I had a room humidifier instead of just every time I found they were dry, I just sprayed the whole entire cage. I didn't do that because I found them to be quite fragile to too high humidity. Mm-hmm. So, but that was, that was probably what I did. And I would do some other stuff. Now I would probably raise the temperatures just a tiny bit. Um, just because when I, when I, when I kept them really cold in the winter, they didn't look good. They were like, they felt uncomfortable. They were in this very super tight coil. Like they wanted to, you know, hold on to the heat or the warmth they had. And I actually also got, respiratory infection in one of them at some point uh, I never used um, any form of uh, medication because I just turned on the uh, the heat a bit more and, and and she was fine but I would definitely do something different now how how cold is cold and if you could give us a Fahrenheit that'd be great if not then I'm gonna <laughs> we're, we're not Fahrenheit over here we are Celsius so I luckily have a converter. I'll try to see. How What's much bad is on on my YouTube videos. I always say things in Fahrenheit, and then the people in <laughs> Europe and the UK and people always shit on me for not putting it in Celsius. Yeah, so so I was keeping them all the way down to is in in Europe it's ten Celsius, it's ten degrees, but in Fahrenheit it's fifty. So I was going down to Holy fifty. Holy shit, that is cold. <laughs> It was super cold, and I did that once, and I would not recommend doing that, <laughs> to be quite honest. So I was normally just doing 55, something like that, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty which is pretty cold as well. Um, oh, sorry, not 55. 59, to be exact. 59 Fahrenheit. That was like my, my normal cold temperature in the in the nights so yeah. yeah i think most of us um who keep pythons it's like you we never get usually below 70 degrees unless maybe no. you know you're okay. messing with some bread lye or something like that but so it's funny it's funny people are just keeping pythons in my opinion totally wrong i have ever since i switched my all my pythons i've kept tons of stuff and i switched all my cages from you know, um, heat mats, like underneath heat mats, I changed to light bulbs instead. And I had a thermostat on, a dimmer thermostat. And, you know, every night, all year round, I turned off the heat. And ever since I did that, I've never had an RI again. I think one of the the reasons uh, people get so many RI is because they keep the heat on at night. You know, for instance, you can just, you know, you can take us human beings, for instance. If we were supposed to be kept in a room that was the same temperature in the cold spot 
all year round. And we got out like one night in the in the winter, we would get cold instantly. If we were getting those cold temperatures once in a while, every night, we would never get sick. So you build up a, a weak snake. If you keep it hot all the time, you keep the warm at night, you'll have a, a you know, if you get cold temperatures just once, you'll have a sick snake. So to to uh, to build up a, a very nice, you know, healthy snake, you have to keep it cold at night. Simple as that. It's it's very simple. And after I did that, I've never had an RI again, which is pretty cool. Really? And, and is that all uh, like Indonesian pythons and Australian pythons? Yeah, Indonesian and Australian uh, pythons. Yeah, all species, all species. Also, I do keep my pythons. I did keep my pythons a lot colder in the hot spot than uh, than most most people does uh, or do because I just found that they didn't need it. I never saw them like really soaking. And uh, I just, you know, decided to uh, to turn the, the heat down. And after that, I got major success breeding lots of stuff. And I'll, I'm actually only giving my pythons. I don't keep any now, but I when I did, I was only keeping them at 86 Fahrenheit as a hotspot, which is okay. very hot. Yeah, I think I think we're starting to see people shift. Or I know a few people who, and I do this just because I always kept corn snakes, so I always had eighty-five hot spot, and then room temperature was always like seventy-three or something. And I just kept my pythons on that, and they've been doing fine. I've never had an RI or anything like that. It's it's fantastic. I think I just know so many people, and especially especially new people that are not very much into like the whole biology of snakes. And just go with that, uh, you know, whatever they're told or whatever's on the internet. And they get a lot of RIs all the time. And um, I can really just tell the difference now. And I'm not afraid to, you know, even my, you know, my more fragile species, I'm not afraid to, uh, to go into the low temperatures at night with those because they are reptiles. Uh, they cold blooded. They, can and will survive a cold temperature. Actually, a more hotter temperature is a way bigger killer than the cold temperatures with reptiles. Um, so that's just my two cents. <laughs> what would you get into as far as uh, like bowlins? You said pop winds and stuff like that. What did you start getting into? I started getting my first Indonesian pythons. Aust- I- Actually, I moved into um, belt pythons and diamond pythons. And from there, I moved into scrub pythons. Yeah. And then it, from there, you know, I got Moluccans, I got Papuans, I got Bolans, and yeah. What were the, the what was the first python species that you successfully bred? That was carpet pythons. Which, yeah. uh, what kind of carpets? Uh, Iron Gyas. Or pop one cover pythons. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's always confusing. By the way, that's yeah. I just still call them IJs. Yeah, but you know, we should just keep calling them IJs because, first of all, it's a cool name, and <laughs> everybody knows them as IJs. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we tend to. Some- anyway, we're not like scientific uh, people, or you know. They're not supposed to go back into the wild and whatever, so mm-hmm. and that, whatever. 
there was some paper saying that IJs are jungles or coastals are everything. So who the fuck knows? Yeah. But um, what you, what did you find differently from you know moving into the pythons from colubrids? Like, what made you do you like pythons more, or are you still kind of finding out what you like? Uh, I think I'm I'm still finding out what I like. Uh, I like everything to be honest. Um, I just like trying a lot of new stuff, and I don't have unlimited time so i have to sell off projects once in a while move into something new just because i wanted to try and and learn more i think the most funny process in this hobby is actually learning about a a brand new species i love reading books so i have like a huge library and if i you know stumble over uh, across a species i really like if I've bred a species and I, you know, already have kept it for many years, I just, I have no regret selling it and, and trying something new at all. So I try to move into as many species as I can and learn a lot instead of just, you know, staying and keeping the same stuff. Yeah. It's actually funny because I find there's, People are not negative towards me, but I find if I see other people like stating, okay, I'm, I'm actually freaking tired of this species of snakes and I'm selling it. I've only had it for two months. I see a lot of negativity in the hobby towards people that does that. And to be honest, it's actually just natural. If you know, if you stumble across a species and you see, you see it on a, a reptile show, you find it really beautiful, then you take it back home and suddenly it's not as interesting as you thought. Why should you then keep it, you know? Then people say, well, you should have researched a lot before or whatever, but, you know, you have to try some something and, you know, you have to be sporadic sometimes just to actually find those species you really like because there's so many to choose from. And, you know, you cannot read about on every species in the hobby because that's impossible. So sometimes when you just see something that you like, just go for it. Mm-hmm. So what do you think as far as how have you had success like moving through different projects? Like, do you have a certain way that you try to tackle everything and then adjust from there according to the species? Um, I have just like Eric does. I have, I have a cold room. I have a room that's actually fairly hot and I have a ambient room. So ambient temperature room or, you know, just a standard room. So first of all, I just, I usually try and buy the species or buy the snakes or lizards as babies. So I just, I can grow them up slowly to adulthood and I can learn the you know, the snakes I'm working with and they can slowly, you know, get used to my space around me. And I've not really, you know, Species like Braille's pythons or diamond pythons, I've, you know, they need that cold temperatures at, you know, at the winter season too, to actually grow follicles to reproduce. So of course I, I'll keep those colder. And I never, you know, mix species. Cold species has one room. Species that requires, you know, a lot of heat, like monotolysis has one room, and ambient species like, or 
species that do well with ambient temperatures like colubrids and you know some of the colder range whatever pythons uh, they are have one room and you know so forth and I've actually had very good success doing that and I've done that all the time because I've I was so lucky just to have you know three rooms that I could house my animals in so I've just you know I've never put like for instance let's say I never put a diamond python in the same room as a as, as a rock monitor or whatever because I know they have two different requirements so I know if I have to keep the exact or the best the optimal temperature for the monitor lizard the diamond pythons will never breed in this room and vice versa so I know for a fact that those two species don't fit in the same room mm-hmm. and by by thinking that way with all the species I think it's it's a pretty good start because I think a lot of of people don't have the success they want because they only have maybe one or two rooms available for them. And they want so many different species that require so many different temperatures and come from so many different places in the world, which of course, if you want to breed them all, they don't need the same, you know, humidity, they don't need the same temperatures and what, you know, so forth. So I think, if you want to try a lot of stuff, you need to, you need a lot of space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that if you, want, if you want to breed it, if you want to keep it, it's a, it's a whole other story, of course. Right. So do you think that, I don't know if you do feed cycling, obviously you mix up the heat, you do drops at night and you do winter drops, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what's your biggest determining factor when trying to breed? It's feed cycling, food cycling. Yeah. So what would you do, say, uh, your Australian pythons? How would you feed them differently according to the seasons? With the carpet pythons, I did the same thing with the everything except the brettles and the diamond, the diamond pythons. I, uh, I just actually, I, I, I didn't really cool them that much down. The room temperature itself fell in the winter period, and I just, you know, the. <laughs> The hour cycle, I just cycle it down to eight hours instead, and I kept the hotspot maybe one or two degrees Celsius lower. And that factor alone, I find it not to be very successful in breeding carpet pythons. So I also, after the cooling the cooling period, I didn't feed those three months. But after that, I started feeding the female, you know, once every week actually. But not with a huge prey item. I just took like a small, a tiny 100 gram rat or so and, and fed them. And they started building the follicles right away. And because they, they're used to that, like in their their biology, biology, they're used to that extra food or that period when they come out of the cold season. Everything started flourishing. All the rodents come out. And, you know, there's like this big feast for them. So they used to get that extra food in. So I think that food cycling is the most important stuff you can do. So I, I do feed right after the cooling period. Then I actually don't feed a lot in the summer at all. I almost don't feed. Then I you know, bump up the food right before or a few months before the uh, the cool, cool period starts again. So, and that seems to, you know, over the years get the females like really used to the cycle and so far it has been very easy (laughs) now i know um in 
in the UK, they have like the no life feeding or stuff. Does that extend to where you are? Are there any crazy laws like that? There is a rule in Denmark saying that you cannot feed life to an animal unless it requires live food to survive. You know, you know what I mean? So you cannot, you can, if you know your whatever bowl constrictor, it it can't eat frozen frozen thought items. Then it's illegal to feed it a live item. If you know it eats frozen thought, it's illegal to feed it live. But if it's a ball python and it never would touch a frozen thought item, you know it's then it's illegal to feed the live. But how would they ever enforce that law? How would they ever control it? You know, it's it's just dumb to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah. So, is there any issue like getting food or anything like that? It's in periods actually. Sometimes the uh, the prices go up a lot because the demand is so high and there's not a lot of producers of rats or and or mice. So the prices. It's actually it's actually a big market, of course, and the prices go up and down all the time. But I've never had issues getting, you know, rats and mice. I just pay the price and shut up. My <laughs> <laughs> money, but it's expensive. It's way more expensive over here than in in the, in the states, of course. Yeah. Mm. So how do you manage, um, as far as like monetarily, time wise, and stuff like that, to get in? all the different state snake species, all the food, all of that kind of stuff, and kind of also have your own personal life? <laughs> well, the, all the reptiles and all the snakes and the lizards have come in different time periods. So right now, for example, I don't keep that many animals. So I'm, I'm what was the peak of your collection and what do you have now? I keep primarily beetle lizards. And I keep some uh, boas, and I keep some monitor lizards. But most of my monitor lizards are actually on loan right now because I do need to live a bit, so I cannot, you know, run around feeding tons of monitor lizards while taking care of boas and and beetle lizards. So I need to just, you know, I couldn't get myself to sell them, so I just sent them on loan instead. <laughs> Gotcha. And you just you just did some traveling, so um, kind of explain yeah. what you were doing, and to just give us a little background. So I, first of all, I was invited by my parents to Guatemala, me and my girlfriend, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty long, you know, plane ride, but it's worth it. But I just told them. Can I please take two days off the schedule and go to this Motagua Valley in Guatemala? Because I know there's the world's one of the world's rarest lizards called the Guatemalan or the Motagua Valley beetle lizard. And they just said, Yeah, we'll tag along. It sounds like a, a great plan. So I planned some month in ahead and in advance and I got contact with the uh, biologist working in the field with that species. And I was actually lucky enough to bring my whole family to the uh, to the Motaga Valley Dry Forest and uh, actually see those uh, animals in the wild. So that was pretty incredible. So for background, what exactly is uh, that specific beaded lizard and what's special about it? 
I do actually have this. This it's a Tel Hicks um, picture of all the uh, Heloderma species. So I don't know if you can see it very well here, but on the top we got the Gila monsters. It's Heloderma uh, suspectum synctum and Heloderma suspectum. Those are actually the same species right now but they were once described as two different species. And then you have the uh, four species of, uh, of beaded lizards. You have the uh, Rio Fuerte, the uh, Exasperatum beaded lizards. You have the, uh, the normal beaded lizards, the Mexican beaded lizards. Then you have, you have the Chiapas region beaded lizard. And then you have the uh, Motagua Valley beaded lizards. So they're, you know, I don't know if you can see it right here, but they're quite, they're quite different for the, uh, for the trained eye. Um, the uh, Motagua Valley beetle lizard is uh, by far the smallest of the uh, of the beetle lizard species, and it's the uh, how do you say it? it's the species that are have the longest distance with mounts with you know surrounded by mountain areas from the other species. All the other species do actually integrate with each other, uh-huh. um, except the uh, Guatemalan. Species. Yeah, so these guys are completely isolated with mountains yeah, around them. Exactly, and they have been so for many uh, millions of years. So they are very different, also genetically um, speaking. So, and they were actually first described very, very late. I think it, I believe it's in, in the nineties, something like that. And they were actually almost thought to be extinct until uh, the biologist uh, Daniel Ariano, he uh, he found them again and started his uh, conservation project. Um, yeah. So what was the habitat like and was it difficult to find them? It was, first of all, it's, it's the rarest, probably one of the rarest species in the world. There's, there have been said to be under two, 200s left in the wild. And uh, Motagua Valley is is not very it's not a very big you know valley and it's filled with uh, with farmers doing papayas uh, farmers apple farmers uh, tons of farmers all around and they are actually like killing the animals when they see them on site and uh, this makes this lizard uh, exceptionally rare to see in the wild because they have just this tiny bit of 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 habitat left where they can actually survive. Um, but yeah, their, uh, their, their habitat is actually, it's called a dry forest. And it's, it's because in seven or six months of the year, they're actually borrowed down uh, into the ground because it's so dry um, and there's absolutely no food for them. So they just like, they don't hibernate because it's, it's actually not very cold in those burrows, but they just go, you know, they just, what is it called when you don't hibernate, but you're like staying? What is that called? I have no idea. They just like maintenance. They just maintain. <laughs> they just stay in the same place for like seven months in the, in the dry month, in the dry period. And then in the summer or the rain season, everything just flourishes back up. And it's the contrast between the dry season and the, the, the rain season is just, you know, insane. Wow. It's absolutely insane. These animals are living probably in one of the harshest conditions you can, you can as an animal. And um, yeah, it's, it's insane. And you can really, 
when you see one in the wild, you really appreciate it because these animals are facing a fast form of extinction if we don't do something. So it's uh, it's actually very severe, and to seeing one in the wild is almost impossible. Um, Daniel, he told me about biology student that came to the area for like two years, just stayed at the you know at the small place they had at the small cabin, and never saw one in the wild. I was super fortunate to spending only two nights there, and actually on the second night seeing one in the wild, which is unheard of. So that was. Uh, <laughs> Did you just cool. see him like walking around out there? Were you flipping? Okay. okay, so I knew for a fact because it was in the um, it was in the end of the, uh, the dry season. So I knew for a fact that you know coming there, seeing one in the wild is next to impossible. So my expectations were set very low. I, I knew they had one, you know, that they used for education that they had at the place. Um, so I knew I would see one, but I didn't expect to see a wild one. So I came there in the, uh, in the, as um, see, in the, uh, the dry season, like the last part of the dry season. And I spent two days and two nights at the place. And we saw tons of, of cool stuff like birds, small geckos, arachnids, scorpions, tarantulas, stuff like that. And I just knew for a fact that rainy season hasn't started yet, so they weren't coming out from uh, from their burrows. So we were just spending the nights looking for everything else, rattlesnakes, new tropical rattlesnakes. Was this um, on the road spotlighting or something? No, we yeah, we did that as well, but we actually we uh walked, you know, in the bottom of a, a dried out river bank. So we could just, you know, we were walking in the river, the dried out river, and we just looked up at the river the river banks, just you know, of course with our with our headlamps and spotlights, uh, trying to find stuff. And uh, we went out for a walk the second night for four hours. We found awesome stuff. I was super high because we found uh, we found the Coleonyx geckos. I don't know if you know those. No. Mistratus, Coleonyx mistratus. They're actually also found in North America, um, some of the other species. They're super cool. They look like a, a leopard gecko. They're eyelid gecko species. We found those. We found... A liar snake, which is a rear-fanged colubrid. We found a, a snail-eating snake, a sebon. Um, we found some iguanas and stuff like that. I was over the moon just by that. And then after four hours, we were like, Daniel told me, like the biologist told me that, okay, let's head back home um, very soon uh, because it's, it's getting late and we were tired. It's super hot even in the night. And um, we just wanted to go back home. And then we suddenly just, we just went like maybe 10 minutes more down the river. And then we just heard this like huge hiss. And then he just, he was, he was in front of me and he just yelled, Escorpion, Escorpion, which means in Spanish, uh, scorpion lizard. And uh, I just started running with the other guys and, there was a beautiful uh, adult female, a young adult female. So uh, that was it. And we uh, we made a video about it and people were like over the moon, almost crying. So is that what they call a, a beaded lizard? Yeah, they, they call them lots of different stuff. They, they are actually 
very negatively described in the local communities because they're just like ancient folklore about them saying that if you see its shadow, you will, if you're carrying children, you will lose your child or, you know, something like that. So there, there are tons of, of bad names for it, but it's called scorpion lizard mostly. Yeah. That, that's wild. So yeah. what were some things about this place in particular in Guatemala that makes it, I mean, I'm trying to get an idea of like the habitat and everything there. Um, what kind yeah. of go for it? Yeah, I, I can actually, I took tons of photos. I took tons of photos of the animal we found. I took off the habitat there and I can actually just send them to you. And you can just put them up on your uh, page or whatever. So people can, you know, see what it's like because it's very, it's very hot to describe. It's, it's super harsh conditions. Um, but their their like optimal habitat is a, a mountainside, not a steep mountainside, but you know, just a, a regular mountainside. And they dig like straight into the side of the mountain, and they dig beneath some of these. Um, what is it called? It's it's like very. Uh, it's it's a bromeliad, you know, a bromeliad plant. Mm-hmm. But it's a ground bromeliad, so it's it's not like a normal bromeliad you see in, in your you know flower shops, flower stores. It's it's a very uh, it's very harsh and very you know almost it's impo- you know it's yeah it's a very it's a very tough plant. It's almost like cacti, so it's you know you can't just stick you can't stick your hands in the hole uh, underneath there to to grab them. And they dig these large large, large holes, deep burrows, and stay underneath for like. 90% of their life <laughs> they're using those bars and they come out at night sometimes to feed um, they are actually compared to some of the other beetle lizard species that have longer limbs because they use <coughs> sorry they use their uh, their limbs to climb up the trees and eat eggs um, and in birds nests and um, other nests so their main diet is actually is actually reptile and or birds eggs. That's probably the last thing I would expect of something of especially like their shape. Especially because it's in family with the Gila monster. And when you see Gila monster, you can see right away that's that animal is not made for climbing. That's for sure. Um, and also there are bearing species, but I think in this habitat. There's not a lot of food, but there's a lot of birds and there's a lot of bird nests. So they need those limbs to actually be able to eat, sustain themselves with enough protein to, you know, reproduce. So that's a very important diet for them. That's crazy. I mean, the more you think about it, the more it makes sense as far as they're not eating for periods of months and months. So obviously they're going to be smaller and then it's harder to get food. So obviously they've you know, evolved more so to be able to get this food, which is just crazy. And they, they also have this, uh, it's, they also have a symbiotic relationship with a very endangered uh, iguana as well called the black iguana. Yeah, it's called Stenosaura pelaris. And it only lives in the Mutagora Valley region as well. It's also super endangered. And they have this symbiotic uh, relationship where where the uh, the Ghana primarily live off 
flowers and seeds of the cacti that the heloderma uses as you know to burrow underneath. Also, the heloderma eats the eggs of the uh, iguana. <clears throat> so it's pretty cool to see like these two species like really they're they need each other to survive, and both species are actually highly endangered. So if one species dies out, the other one is even less you know likely to survive. And it's which is very sad, but also very interesting. Do you know um, what kind of square mileage this little area is that's isolated? Yeah, it's it's real. It's really sad because the place that the Hilodermer Reserve is placed, the, like the field station, is placed on, like in the middle of the highest concentration of this beetle lizard, and uh, it's only. 150 hectares of, of land, which is insanely no, small. Right. Yeah. And they have only found, you know, they're just estimating the numbers. They have only found, I have, I have no idea how many they have found, but it's, it's not many. It's like 50 animals or so. I can't really remember to be honest, but something like that. And they're just estimating that, there are some animals barred down around the area and, you know, they, they have no idea on how many animals actually left here, but it's, it's not many. It's not many. That's crazy. So do you know, um, what, what are the chances that you were able to see that one animal, you know, that night when it wasn't it's, even in peak season? I can, I can assure you for that. I'm the only European guy that ever have seen one live. And also I am the 15th, of non-local people that have seen one in the wild. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty insane. Yeah. So fortunately, the female we found, it was not an animal that had been found before, so it had no microchip in her. So it's actually a new one to the book, so, which was very nice to see a, a wild adult nature female ready to, to, to do her duty, if you want right. to say so. So what are the steps that they're taking to um, record the animals and ultimately help the species? Right now they have some holding pins at the, uh, at the facility or at the reserve they have in the, you know, in the area where they actually, if they have this deal, if, if local people find them, they made a deal that if they deliver them, the animals to them, instead of killing them or selling them, they will provide them with, you know, a basket of food instead of, of you know killing it so they 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 once in a while find these animals in the wild and then they bring them to them so they they keep all these animals that are brought to them in these holding pens so that first of all of all they they microchip them then they six them and then they put them together in these pens then they keep them for you know almost a season so when they breed in these pens they don't hold the females back to you know, get the eggs and incubate them. They actually release the females into the wild so they can lay the eggs in the wild. And by then, you know, making the whole process more natural. But then again, it's a very it's a very dangerous technique because a lot of things can go wrong. And in situations like this, with a species so rare, with animals so few 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 far in between, we wanna, you know, have all the babies to survive. So but there's no resources for it and they don't have the time because the guy working there, you know, he's a farmer as well. And 
the biologist teacher, he cannot, you know, he cannot come there every day. It's, you know, it's almost four hours drive from Guatemala City where he lives and teaches. So it's not, it's not a, something you can, you know, a place you can go every day. So they need resources to take this project even further. And um, that's the next step. And I'm actually moving forward, trying to help them doing this. Yeah, I mean, that's part that I was going to ask if they've considered like talking to people in the reptile hobby or people who procreate them on a hobbyist basis to, you know, get more insight. Yeah, I I don't think they're interested in this because the Guatemalan people or the Guatemalan Guatemala, uh, Guatemala as a country is very, you know, protective of their endangered wildlife. So. I don't think they're looking into doing a, you know, a project with private the private sector, but I do believe that they're very interested in doing larger projects where you know people help them with stuff and help them with money to buy up more land, help them with you know whatever it takes to uh, to help the species. But yeah, it's uh, it's a fantastic country, but it's also it's a country filled with poverty. It's a country filled with corruption. Um, it's not so easy just, you know, to go through a process like this and do it legally. It's, it's very, it's, uh, it takes quite some time to do this, I think, many years. Was it yeah. something as, you know, coming from, from Denmark, was it easy to get into this part of Guatemala? It's, you know, you have to know people to to do so it's it's not for the faint-hearted either it's it's very harsh it's very harsh conditions and it's not it's not very nice to live there more than two days <laughs> did you have any issue i mean you must stick out pretty, pretty oh yeah I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fucking gringo <laughs> gringo that everybody uh looks at um but it's 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 quite funny it's but it's something different, and I I try to travel a lot, and I love I love to travel, and I love seeing you know other cultures and stuff like that. So it's I just feel really happy to have found that place, and I'm definitely going back. That's for sure. Even though it's it's not very pleasant to stay there in the wild with them. That's well, you sure. pretty much hit a home run the first time, so yeah, you can only go down. <laughs> I'll probably never see one in the wild. <laughs> So have you um, done, obviously you've done a lot of traveling, but have you herped other places around the world? I've herped in, uh, in Australia, but that was, <laughs> that's probably, yeah, that's almost 12 years ago. So I was 16 years old. So that's, you know, I didn't see a lot. I saw some boy guy. I was mostly in Queensland, so I, I saw I saw the most, you know, the common stuff, the stuff everyone sees, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite cool anyway, you know, but, you know, I really want to go back there to do like the whole, the whole tour. Um, yeah. Going from the East coast to the West coast, seeing all the cool stuff, all the varanids, all the uh, lizards, all the, uh, <laughs> all the uh, taipans, of course, the brown snakes, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think it's difficult because, if you were to go there, I mean, there's at least four or five regions that pretty much could take <laughs> up a week or two weeks of your time. Oh, yeah. So, 
that's for sure. That's uh, over a month of worth a trip. Yeah. I would say. But I would if say if I were, if you wanted to write, you need a, a couple of months. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so what it? What's your pinnacle animal to find out in the wild, or something that you want to go look for in the future? Okay, so this was actually my pinnacle animal to find in the wild, like the uh, Hiloderma Charles Bogarty. That's that was my pinnacle animal to find. If I have to say one more. It would be Corallus cropeni, <laughs> and that's the crop- that's the Corallus that was just discovered, right? Yeah, it was it was rediscovered. It was only known from dead specimens and old photographs. So, yeah, that's crazy. Rediscovered, yes, but I mean in two thousand seventeen. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So that's my uh, my next holy grail. <laughs> gotcha. And are these um, Mexican or these beta lizards, are they present in the hobby? They are nuts. They are nuts. Is that a good thing? <laughs> I think both ways. It would be nice to have them in the hobby, but I think it's also good that they're not in the hobby because they can be exploited, especially for farmers who, you know, if you're not having a lot of income and all of a sudden, if you come in there and say, Hey, I'll give you, you know, $300 for this. I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't have any problem digging up a few. They have never been legally in the hobby. They have been in the hobby illegally. And I know for a fact that the punishment for having them uh, illegally is very high. There was a smuggler in the Czech Republic many years ago that that had four or five specimens that uh, that sold them here in Europe. And uh, the guy that bought some of them, he was actually here in Denmark, and uh, he was fined a very large fine for keeping them illegally. And also they were taken from him and moved to a Danish zoo, which is pretty cool. So I can actually go and see them in the Danish zoo when I want to, but it, unfortunately it's five, oh, it's, it's four males that are left. So wow. no, females. that sucks. <laughs> now you're getting deep into beaded lizards. So what do you have right behind you? <clears throat> I think I would like to actually show them to, uh, instead of talking to them, because there's actually a very visual difference between all of them. So, First of all, I always use hex armor gloves. Uh, it's not because I'm a pussy. I just don't want to get bit. And I've seen one of my friends get bit by a Gila monster, and it was not a, a nice sight. So I respect them a lot. They are venomous lizards, um, and they can be dangerous. So Hey, man, you got to risk fingers here. Yeah, so these, these actually go you know, quite up the arm and almost up to the elbow. So when I, when I, you know, handle these animals like this with these gloves, there's no danger at all. And I find them to be actually very, uh, most of them are, are very calm. So, yeah. Are those specifically made for things like healers or does it work as well on like venomous uh, snakes? It, it, it's called uh, venom gloves. So they were actually made for venomous snakes. And I don't know if you've seen some of the guys uh, that keep huts. They often have a pair of these where they like maybe hold a small 
handle a small uh, venomous snakes, but it, snake, but it's not, you know, don't risk it with, with large venomous snakes. They are proven to be 100%, you know. I wouldn't test. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> hook, hook them out anyways. It's, you know, it's just for safety, but yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't risk my life with a, with a large, uh, the lapid or something like that. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, my, my throat is a bit sore. Now you're good. <laughs> so for people who are listening on the downloaded podcast and like Casper has been sitting behind these like eight, mm-hmm. it looks like four foot enclosures, which I guess all have uh, beaded lizards in them. Exactly. So this is one of them. I don't know if the light is good, but this is called a Rio Fuerte bearded lizards, and it's one of the species I keep. It's from uh, Mexico. It's from the Alamos region of uh, northern Mexico, um, where they got these guys live along the uh, the Rio Fuerte basin, and uh, they're actually a very very colorful bearded lizard. They uh, have a lot of yellow. They have lots and lots of pattern all over the body. I was going to say, I mean, I've, I don't know much about like Gila Derma and that stuff, but I always saw the beta lizards as kind of ugly and the Gila's are very nice, but this one's got a lot of color and a lot of pattern. It's, it's actually funny because the, yeah, they aren't the prettiest animal, but I actually think they're so ugly that they, uh, they actually are cute. <laughs> and I know like a pinnacle species is like the all black ones and people love those. Yeah, that's called the the chapen, the chapen bearded lizard, and I'll get to that later. But this is uh, this is like the northernmost species of bearded lizard, called the Rio Fuerte bearded lizard, and it's very cool. It's also the most common species kept in captivity. So, okay. for those out there that don't know about bearded lizards, there are currently four species that are totally, you know, separated from each other, and this is one of them. This is the most commonly kept species. So now I'll go down to the uh, the Mexican bearded lizard, and it's the uh, it's the bearded lizard called Hiloderma horridum horridum, um, and it's the most common, you know, species in the wild. It's 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 a species with the the widest um, distribution all over Mexico. So it goes actually it goes from Rio Fuerte where where this you know species live. And overlap with the species all the way down to uh, Oaxaca, um, which is the, the southernmost state, along with Chiapas in Mexico. So I'll grab one of those. Now, all these guys, while they're trying to like move around, and we can hear them hiss and stuff, they seem... I mean, no one's trying to bite you. Is that typical? Uh, <laughs> they are pretty hissy. They are very, uh, they are very vocal animals, and it's not, you know, it's not because they're aggressive or anything. But most of them are just noisy, and very few and far between are actually aggressive. But this one I'm bringing out now is is. He's the devil. He's the worst. Well, he's coming he, out to say, hey, he's poking yeah. his head out. 
he will actually try to bite me. You know, if I let him, he will bite me for sure. <laughs> sure. Oops. Okay, and they're super strong as well. So you can see this one is very different than the other one. It has way more reduced pattern. is uh, is very black, and it had white or yellow dots on it. It has not as you know contrasted pattern, not as wide, you know bands on the tail, and it's actually also a species that that grows very large. So this one is a uh, Hiloderma horridum horridum or Hiloderma horridum. Um, now this guy, for people who can't see, is about like the length of your forearm, like your hand oh. slash without yeah. counting the tail. But um, how do these guys get any bigger? Is that adult size? You will get bigger. <laughs> they can actually get huge, these guys. So this is only a juvenile. He's only three years of age, four years of age. And these guys also get very old. So you're looking at an animal that can easily get to 35, 40 years old. Wow. If they're kept right, of course. And do you know how late they've bred them as far as age goes? How long that they can reproduce? You know, I, have, I have two babies from uh, a U.S. guy called uh, Steve Angeli. And it's two babies from a pair that's over 30 years of age. So... That's pretty cool. But I know for a fact that they can breed very, very old. And so what do you do um, to breed these guys? Or have you bred them yet? I have not bred them yet, any of them. But last year I had eggs from my uh, from my all black uh, chop and beauty lizards, but they were all they all went bad after a short while, which is very unfortunate, but uh, but shit happens. But these guys also need, like most python species, they need some month off food. They need some month with a cold period. So instead of giving them heat at day, like you do with python species, these guys go at the same temperature day and night and in the winter time for three to four months. So they're kept quite cold, but... Not as cold as I'm, I'm used to with the uh, the python species, but these guys I'm trying to find the uh, the Fahrenheit for you. I keep them around sixty-eight down to sixty-four in the winter for three to four months without feeding them, and uh, that's with no light, no heat, no nothing at all. Is this and then simulating a, a time where they would burrow in the wild? It's exactly. It's it's simulating a time where they would be burrowing uh, away from the uh, the dry time or the dry period. And then you again, then you raise the temperature. You make sure that they get a large water bowel. You make sure that you, that the humidity rises afterwards, and then they will eat for some month. And then in actually right now in in April and May they will start copulating. So right now these guys are together trying to uh, 
yeah, trying to get them to copulate each other. So do you, you just keep them together this whole season and do you feed them together? Yeah, I, I don't feed them together because they, they are actually, believe it or not, they can't react very fast when, when food is around. So, so I don't feed them together, but I keep them together and then I just, you know, check them out every night and then, or I usually found them to, uh, to breed mostly at night. So when the lights are off. So you, you have caught copulations. Yeah, I have, I have luckily. (laughs) And I don't know anything about, uh, you know, keeping a lizard like this. What do you feed them and how often? It's just like snakes. Actually, these guys, they don't require the same amount of food as a, as a monitor lizards because they are quite inactive. They use, like I said before, 90% of their lives in a burrow. So they're not, you know, <laughs> they're not very active like a monitor species. So these guys only feed once a week and big animals feed up to maybe once every other week. And then they you just feed them a frozen thawed mice or a small rat or something like that. So it's just like keeping a snake actually. That's crazy. I had no idea. How many, um, would they take multiple mice or is it just like an adult mouse every week for an animal that size? They will take multiple mice or one larger rat, something like that. Gotcha. And it looks like your set is pretty straightforward. What is it? Aspen and a hide and a light? Yeah, exactly. It's it's very straightforward. It's just you know, I just do what you know what other people does so that are successful with this. So so it seems to work very well. And I keep them around. These guys don't like heat a lot. They don't like it a lot. Um, not like monitor lizards. So you have to keep them quite cool in the hot spot. So only keep them for around, you know around. What is it? I have to go to the dashboard. I can do the translation. You got gloves. Yeah. Uh, yeah, keep them around 89 for a hot spot, which is pretty low for a lizard if you want to, you know. I mean, especially if people know anything about monitor lizards, you know, you can easily get a savanna up to like 120 degrees or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They love the heat. <laughs> especially the uh, the desert living species. They, they need that heat to even breed. So this this is like the third species of uh, of uh, of bee lizards, and it's the uh, the chapan or the chap or the what is it called the albaresi. It's the all black one. So in what region are those in Mexico as well? They are in Mexico. They are in the in the Chiapas region of Mexico, and it's the uh, the mountain region um, that goes or you know are right next to Guatemala. So these are actually also found in the in the mountain region in Guatemala, right next to the the border to Mexico. So that's pretty cool. And these guys, they mostly get all black, and they get quite large. And that one doesn't look, uh, especially like in the tail region and stuff, as thick as the other one. What is it, the Hordum? Yeah, it's just because this guy he's uh, he's just a younger animal mm. and. Uh, yeah, he's not been fit that much. <laughs> gotcha. So, how many pairs are you working with right now of each species? Um, right now, I have 
I have some unsexed of the uh, Rio Fuerte. I don't have, I don't know the sexes yet, but I do have a reverse trio of these guys. And I have a trio of the uh, the other Horridum. So I have around one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I have around 20 beating lizards right now. <laughs> Do they have to but, reach a certain age to sex them, or can you probe them early? Um, you cannot probe them at all. You need to uh, actually; they need to be mature, and you need to ultrasound them to be one hundred percent of the sex. Well, that's a pain so, in the ass. Uh, do you plan on ultrasounding every single one of them, or do you just pair? I know for a fact some of them are what they are because either they have copulated or they have produced eggs. So I'm pretty sure of of. Uh, of the big ones, but um, you know, in the big, you know, in the future, I don't want to be ultrasounding them because it's it can be quite hot. It can vary from time of the year. Um, sometimes it can look like a female. Sometimes it can look like a male. So you really just want to grow them up and pair them up just to see what they are. Really, is there any so downside it, of keeping males together? You know, like some other species, males may fight. These guys will fight. Um, in the breeding season, but they won't, you know, they won't kill each other. So they do this cool dance where they're on the side and they're like arching their backs. Um, yeah. Like wrestling with the other male. It looks really cool. And actually sometimes it's very good for them to wrestle. Uh, if you have two males, if you want to get the, uh, the male to copulate or show interest in the female at all. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very good. I mean, that must be. La I mean, because I held a a Gila for for the first time. I was like, "What? The it's so different. They're so distinctly like hard and like armor plated." Oh yeah, it's it's very cool. Um, all these small they're called beaded lizards because of all these small beads on their skin, and it's actually bones. All these small ones here on each scale. There's a small bone. Just like an alligator or crocodile, for that matter, actually, mm. and uh, they look like beets, so that's why they have their the most common name beaded lizards from. If you can see the texture here, mm. it's very cool, super cool lizards. I love them. They're very fun, very personal, great captives. Now, are there a lot of people breeding these in captivity? Not the black one. But the other one is pretty, uh, the other two species are pretty commonly bred in captivity, actually. Especially in the United States, there's a lot of, uh, of breeding going on over there. <clears throat> Have you had to import most of these from the U.S.? Or they... yeah, yeah, I've been importing some stuff from, uh, from the U.S., but I've found quite some, quite some stuff here in Europe as well. So it's almost the same, but it's very cool. Gotcha. Yeah. So where do you look what do you look forward to in the future of your collection? Are you gonna get more beaded? Are you gonna go somewhere else? I'm not gonna get any more beaded lizards. <laughs> I'm very happy where I'm right now with those yeah. Do you do you have room to expand if you wanted to? I do, yeah. I do have. I do have. I actually have this you can see this. 
Oh damn. <laughs> Those <laughs> monitor cages or Yeah, that's some that's where I usually kept my monolizits and or other stuff. Yeah, for people who couldn't see, those were pretty much cages that took up an entire, basically the size of a small room. Yeah, (laughs) I can show it again. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. That was just one. It's a cage is pretty much Mm. all over there. But they're, they're mostly empty right now. You could keep a Komodo dragon, dude. <laughs> I probably could have if I just, you know, used all this room for one cage. Yeah. <laughs> so what were you keeping? One male. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you must have been keeping some larger species of monitors. Yeah, I was. I was keeping lace monitors. I was keeping lace monitors in those cages, so. Do you ever plan on getting back into snakes? Yeah, I I actually do. I do. I have snakes right now. Oh, what uh, do you what do you have? Oh, well, the boas, right? I have yeah, I have one Amazon basin, a male, and I have five annulated tree boas. You know what? I don't. For some reason, my mind went to like, oh yeah, he has like some like BCIs or something. But obviously, you have something <laughs> cool. So, so where do you get your basin? When I got it, I got it last summer. So it's a fairly new thing for me. I've kept green tree pythons over the years. I have, I've had awful success with those. I've killed so many of those. <laughs> um, they're just my, you know, my nemesis species. I can't keep those. No matter what I do, I fail at keeping them. Either I get egg-bound female or they die after laying shitty eggs or they suddenly just you know fill off the perch dead i have no idea and i've kept them over three times and you know i've been disappointed every time Mm -hmm. so i just wanted uh, a green snake (laughs) but i wanted something different so i went with the uh the amazon basin because i could get this male for a fairly good price and he was the last male in the in the litter and you know it was a good deal. So it so was just, uh, captive, born and bred. Yeah, cap- yeah, of course. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Brazil or you know the uh, the countries around the Amazon basin they don't export um, anymore of that stuff. Okay. So haven't seen a, a, a wild caught basin in many years. Mm-hmm. So I guess if people don't know, what is the difference between an Amazon basin and a regular emerald? tree boa it's <laughs> the easiest part to see the difference between amazon basin and the northern emerald tree boa is is looking at the pattern and the head scalation um it's like the amazon basin have all these small scales on the head while the the northern uh the northernmost species of the green tree boa have these like larger plates um as scales on the head also, their pattern is almost like lightning bolts. Um, almost look like this. Go down the side. Whether the, um, I mean, where the uh, the basin have all this, you know, maybe. I don't. I have no idea actually how a, how a wild caught basin looks like. 
how the normal face is. I have no idea. But they usually have this stripe all the way down its back, and it had these small barbs. Yeah, I don't know if that's something we've bred into in captivity as far as the high white, or they come out that high white. I, I think I think most we would find in the wild have not a lot of white. It's very desirable in captivity, so of course, and you know, Amazon basins have, have a long history of, of captive breeding, um, even longer than the uh, the northern the northern um, green tree burrows. So they have been bred in so many generations, and they have all the breeders have been breeding towards more white. So it's just like jungle carpet pythons. Really, they don't look that uh, like that. In the you wild. can't find an ugly one anymore. <laughs> Not very often, but you know, who am I to know? I've never been in the Amazon basin, never been looking, never been finding one of those. So I could be wrong, but it's. And yeah. I've I've heard that they are um, a lot calmer. I don't know if you've experienced oh, yeah. that. Way calmer. I have kept one northern many years ago. Uh, that was crazy, crazy, crazy. But then again, I think it's something with how many generations they have been bred in captivity, uh, where all the northerns are mostly come from wild caught parents or are wild caught themselves. So I just believe it's. Just a matter of time uh, in captivity and or how many generations they have been bred in captivity. Mm. Yeah. But they are, they are more calm, for sure. Now, you have super expensive taste because um, <laughs> you're like, it's a good price. And I mean, if people people are like, oh, I heard about Basin. He was, he was around 1,000 euros, which is super cheap. That's very cheap. So people don't yeah. know. I haven't seen many basins for under four to six thousand dollars. No. Yeah, that's U.S. dollars. They actually fetch a higher price in the in the U.S. right now than they are in, in Europe because I I think the market for for costly animals like that is way better in the states. People don't have faith in the market in Europe, so people keep what they want. Not they don't believe they can, you know earn from it so and me neither if if i wanted to earn money in, in this hobby i would never have started i've lost so many so so <laughs> many so much it's just incredible <laughs> yeah i mean you can tell i guess the american mentality is always capitalism money off of everything so it's like we're always making our rooms filling it with animals that can make us money i mean do you see kind of the yeah. opposite over there yeah, mostly, mostly people are just keeping what they really like. But when the ball python market was, you know, at the top, we had the same kind of people over here, of course. We had a lot of people investing in that market, if you want to call it that. And yeah, all those people are not here anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is. Now, now, actually, now, actually, people that keep ball pythons actually do like ball pythons. And yeah. Uh, that's good with me. I, I do like a, a ball python. I think it's a nice snack. Yeah, they could be fun. It's boring, it's boring as, as fuck, but it's, <laughs> it's nice. Then again, what's the difference between that and, you know, an emerald just sits there too, but it sits there and looks yeah. pretty. But. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what was the other um, Corallus that you said you had? Uh, the annulated tree bows. 
the uh, they look like uh, Amazon Triboa, like a hot lines, but they're just very docile. Don't come in the in the same amount of uh, of color faces. They're just they're different. They're very different. They actually uh, branched off the whole Hotchilanas, you know, group um, the, around the same time as the uh, a little bit after the uh, the the green tree bows. So they are very distinct from the uh, the Hotchilanas, but they do have the similarities, of course. But there's currently two species of of those bows, and it's it was first called Corallus annulatus or annulata, uh, but now it's it's Corallus annulata and Corallus bloombergi, something like that, and they're primarily found from Ecuador up uh, to Guatemala, actually. So it's a very it's a very cool species of of tree bow and very calm, very nice, just something different, just something different. So you said that they're calm, so it's kind of like having an Amazon tree boa that's calm. Exactly. That's pretty nice. What do you do? You hope to get those to breed? Do you have a pair? Yeah, I, I do have. I have three point two right now, but they're all babies. They're all very young, um, and I've heard from other breeders that they take quite some time to mature up, and so that's a long term project. I'm, I'm maybe six years away if I'm lucky. So. Five, six. Do you have any problems with feeding them rodents or anything like that? Not at all. Yeah. Easy. Super easy. That's good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. They just you don't you don't need to feed them. That's the only thing I needed to convert into when I when I started keeping bows again, like feeding a lot less than pythons. I fed less, you know, normally with pythons, but I have to feed even less now, which is. Uh, that was probably the hardest part, you know, seeing that hungry tree boa all day long. But that's how it is. That's why that always confused me because I have an Amazon and it seems like like a green tree, you don't feed it a lot and it takes a while for it to go to the bathroom, all this stuff. It has a slow metabolism and you can tell the Amazon yeah. it will eat and then it will shit like the next day and then it will be hungry for all the rest of the days. But I'm not supposed to feed it. But I'm like, yeah. what is, it will like eat there, constantly. They, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's it's weird. It's weird, but it's one of those species that can actually take the uh, you know the average snake keeper's food cycle. But you know, annulated tree boas and emerald tree boas of the two species can't do that. They will simply die from it, or you know get really sick you will have you'll end up having tons of problems that's for sure mm-hmm. so these are even though they look like amazon tree bows they are very different very very different mm-hmm. how do you keep uh things like that do you keep them in tubs as babies or in enclosures yeah i, yeah, I do keep them in tubs and just you know standard snake racks i keep them around what is it like their hotspot is like 82, which is pretty low. Mm. And then they go down to like 71 at night. And that's the same. You're turning off all the heat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and the basins are kept the same way. They're just kept in, in or it's just kept in a, in a cage. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So would you say that you are like a tub keeper or a cage guy? Do you have a little bit of both? 
I do like the I do like cages the most, to be honest. Also, why I got all those huge cages because I really enjoy seeing animals. You know, if it's rodents, they walk around, climb around. But you know, with snakes, I like wrecked systems too. I do, I do. It's really nice. It's very beneficial for some species that are very timid or you know just are used to living in bars like bull pythons and stuff like that. So I respect racks a lot. I think it's you know important in our hobby and in keeping reptiles in general. It's also I know for a fact that a lot of zoos use rack systems as well. So it's you know it's a it's a professional and it's the right way to do it as well. Just as much as a cage is a good idea for some other species. So mm. I you know, I like both. Gotcha. So I know a lot of a lot of people are asking about popwin pythons. Oh yeah. And- <laughs> Those are my favorite pythons. So when did you get into those? Actually, the same year as I got my uh, Bolin's pythons, 2010. I got, I had six of those. And I kept some. I actually, I was lucky enough to acquire a pair of reverse trio of captive born babies from 2010 uh, from a German guy. And he was the last one to breed them in Europe before me. And uh, I grew those up. Um, <clears throat> they were never breeding because they were way too young. Um, but I also had some older wild-caught or long-term captive animals that were around 11 years old when I was uh, lucky enough to breed them. So, yeah, they're very, very cool. They're super strong snakes, very nice, very intelligent, highly intelligent, very vocal um, just all around, probably the uh, coolest python you can ever imagine, in my opinion. Um, I would, you know, I've kept many bones, and I would any day take a popcorn python over a bowling if I could only choose one of them. I would do that any day. Oh, no. Any day. <laughs> People are going to go crazy. Yep. Bones are nice, but they're pretty boring as well, to be honest. Just, <laughs> How would you uh, boring in like temperament? They're just no. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's probably because I I just like snakes where you don't necessarily know every every move they're gonna make. I like to be on, on my toes. I like keeping stuff I'm not I don't know 100% and it's, I just felt like I could read a bones python 100% mm. and I don't know why they're just maybe too sleepy for my taste <laughs> <laughs> so I like I like amethystine pythons I've kept a ton of those as well really enjoyed those I like those a lot as well so I like you know even though I like annulated tree bows and basins when i get into the larger snakes i like the uh i like more active stuff well i live pretty much right uh right near austin warwick and tony jerome i don't know if you know them but they both have pop ones and um those are a snake that you come in the room and then it knows you're there and it checks you out and it and then like i feel like scrubs are the same way but scrubs are like the can i can i bite this in the face maybe (laughs) But yeah, like, and poppins eat, eat the scrubs in the wild as well. So, really, you know, the, the smarter outsmart the 
uh, not so smart snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I've heard so many horror stories of them eating each other. How? Oh, yeah. There's actually a funny story in, back in the days, and I think it was in the 80s or something like that, in Dallas Zoo. They used to keep like this big terrarium or big cage with all, all sorts of constrictor snakes. There was like anacondas, boa constrictors, all the big ones, the retics, burmese, pythons, rock pythons, and popcorn pythons, scrub pythons, all them, all them, all the big ones. And they, for some reason, didn't understand how why the uh, the snakes were suddenly not there. So suddenly the retic was missing. The green anaconda was missing and other stuff just started to, uh, you know, disappear in the cage. And they actually thought that the snakes were uh, escaped, escaped the cages and just, you know, went off until they one day uh, discovered the, uh, the Papuan python uh, with one of the snakes, uh, you know, halfway down the throat. So uh, they're definitely a uh, snake eating snake. They're not... They're very, very powerful. They will take down big prey items for sure. So how, how do you ensure that when you put this male with the female, they won't eat each other? That's a good question. And it's actually, it's one of the the questions I get asked the most with this species because they, they will eat each other. And, you know, there are countless of people that have experienced this uh, trying to breed them and... I know for a fact that one of the grandfathers in herpetoculture called uh, Frank Schofield, he almost bred every species of snakes, or not, not snakes, or py- of pythons that you know existed in the hobby. He's from UK and he's he's like one of the greatest, in my opinion. And he could not just produce popcorn pythons because his female just kept eating the males. So, and I've heard this story from so many people and I just did something different. Uh, every time I cleaned their cages and that was like maybe every week, every second week, I would put them in together while I was going through the cage cleaning. And I would just sit there for 15 minutes afterwards, just, you know, looking at them. I just wanted to get them to know each other from the beginning, from the get-go. So I knew for a fact that she didn't get surprised when there was suddenly a male in the breeding season because these females require a lot of food to develop follicles. So for them to actually mate up, they need to know each other, plus the female needs to get fed a lot after, you know, after the periods of, of no food. Um, so they get to they need to get more food than a copper pattern. I would feed a female maybe twice a week after, after the, uh, what do you say, the, the off food season. And I would put in the male all the time when they were not feeding. So I would try to feed the male and I would feed the female twice a week. And I would just simply right after put the male inside the female's cage again. Because if she didn't get fed, she would might... You know, because she was developing follicles and they were copulating, she needed something more. So if I didn't feed her twice a week, I'm sure that she would actually go look for uh, for another food source in that meal. So you need to be on your toes. You need to, uh, you know, it's not a species you just leave for two weeks without noticing anything. You need, you need to be on your toes. You need to 
go there once a day, check up on them, um, feed that female a lot, and also have a very decent sized male. It you know you can't like carpet python use a tiny male. Forget about it. He will just be like spaghetti. He will he will get eaten for sure. Uh-huh. You need a big ass male with a big ass head, you know, to control that female. Mm-hmm. So I used a big, big, big male. He was so big that if she decided that she wanted to eat him, she would not be able to eat him. So do you think uh do you think it's possible though that the male could eat a female? Or is that less common? I think it's less common. Because I think I think it's mostly because of the the males get eaten in the breeding season, and it's, I think it's mostly because the females don't get enough food and often enough. I think that's the main reason. Do you think in the wild they could copulate, and then after she copulates with whoever, she just eats them? Very well. Jeez. I think that's very possible. Yeah. That's... I think that's very positive. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like, or maybe, you know, maybe we're not giving them enough room so the male can't exactly get away if you're in a, if you're in a four foot cage with a giant female or even a six foot cage. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's I, fucked. Actually, um, my male, he was way longer. He was like maybe 15 feet. He was super long, but very, very slim. <clears throat> my female was very girthy, but, but you know, not as long at all but they were same age but she was you know way stronger because of of the girth and um she actually broke that male's back the second season i was trying to to copulate them um because he she he was just annoying her he was trying to copulate maybe you know twice a day and she was just getting tired of him so she just used her mass and pressed his body you know in the side of the enclosure and she literally almost snapped his back. So after that, he got a big kink on his back um, because of the aggression from the female. But she didn't, you know, go the next step and, you know, striking at him at all. But you could easily feel that she was annoyed. She didn't want him there at all. And I think you have to notice that as well. That could be that could be a step that we're leaning towards an eaten male. So that's that's wild. So what did you? Were you watching them all the time, or you just checked them once a day? Yeah, I checked them once or twice or three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> so when but you... I was never observing them, I just went into the room, looked into the uh, glass, and you know checked them. Then when my you know went away again, mm-hmm. never disturbed them. So was that? Um, I know you said you had a group of them. Did you? Yeah. Did you produce uh, with one pair or did you end up getting multiple pairings to go? I only produced with one pair because I only had one pair that was actually old enough. So the history with this species is that there have never been a, uh, a noted copulation that led to eggs with animals that were younger than 10 years of age, which is very different from other python species. So... And they need old. Do you do you think that has to do with the the snake itself, or it's prone to stressing out from moving around, or both? I have no idea. I have no idea. There is absolutely no uh, natural biology, you know, studied with this snake at all. We have nothing to go from, so we know nothing about these snakes in the wild. 
it's very sad, but that's how it is. Mm-hmm. How big? How big was that? Made it very hard to like you know try and reproduce the the natural environment with this with this species. So mm-hmm. and the the year where I because I had parents with these like four years in a row, nothing happened. You know, I saw a female growing large follicles and then she just absorbed them and that was it. So that year I got eggs for the first time and the only time um, because I sold all my snakes the year after uh, was the year that I actually tried to mimic a, uh, a wet season. So all of April, because I know for a fact that in the, habit, in, the, in the habitat in the wild, it rains a lot in April. That's like a month where, where the heavy rain falls. So I just try to mimic that and I spray them down once in a while, maybe once every morning, actually, when I, when I remembered and that seemed to help them, you know, get into that cycle. Mm-hmm. How big was the clutch? It was only, uh, it was 15 X, but five of them didn't hatch. So they were all feral, but the five five of the snakes were actually full term dead in the egg uh, when the other hatched. Yeah. Do you just incubate at normal python temperatures? Uh, yeah, I did. I did, and it took over a hundred days. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Over a hundred days. That's almost minus a species. Uh, <laughs> it takes that long. Well, well of course it's longer, but yeah, yeah. That's that's wild. I mean, I've had corn snakes take a hundred days, so it took even longer than we take eggs. And that's you know pretty wild. I guess I guess if it's just uh, a bigger snake, takes longer to form. Yeah, they were around like the babies were around hundred, like almost hundred grams when they hatched. Yeah, that's a big snake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now. Yeah. Um, what else were you breeding at this time? What other pythons were you breeding? That that season, I got the poplins. I had no other breedings. I had the bolins breeding, but that didn't lead to anything. So I was I was really concentrating on the poplins this year, that year. Do you think that's important to just focus on one particular species? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you know, if if I bred a species multiple times, I have you no, know, I have no intention in keep breeding the the following year. I I like the puzzle, the puzzle part of it. I don't like, I, I actually, I hate feeding baby snakes. I hate raising baby snakes. They were not a species that I'm really into and that I, I've never been bred before. So to raise another 50 copper pythons that year, that would, you know, <laughs> so too much, much work. So once you breed it once, you're like, whatever, I figured this out. Now you need something else to figure out. Yeah, you know, I I did a lot of copper pattern clutches, but yeah, I've been turning towards that. I I just don't find it that interesting anymore mm. after I've done something. But with poplin pythons, that's one species I definitely, you know, I miss them a lot. That's that's for sure. So I just actually bought a uh, a small female, a baby. So I'm I'm. Pick it up in June, so I'm gonna keep one as a pet. Gotcha. <clears throat> now you just gotta wait, you know, ten years if you want to breed it. Yeah, but I'm number. You're still young. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, that is a a crazy thing that like 
you're especially for snake people we talk about this a lot because there's only so many people in like our age range because i'm i'm 26 but for someone to be so successful with different species like you have by 28 is just crazy yeah but then again I've, i've been keeping them for almost my entire life so i've been i've been very much into how to breed reptiles ever since i was a kid Mm-hmm. So, and of course, I've been keeping a lot. So, you know, compared to other people that maybe start later, I've had already many years doing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And but yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy to to be one of the few persons that can actually say that I've bred Papua and pythons. That's my by far my biggest achievement uh, in the uh, in the breeding. You know apartments or whatever departments where we say yeah yeah that's crazy and i know that like at least for me like through high school then college then now like i moved like 10 times i was irresponsible i was an idiot how did you manage like all of that and i mean there's so many transitional periods in that time Uh, okay so so (laughs) i've been i've been of course i've been moving in apartments in copenhagen which is the capital of denmark and I've been living in two different apartments over the years, and I've tried to have my snakes in there, but you know, my my hobby was so big that I didn't have the room for it, simply because I could, afford, of course, I couldn't afford a, a, a huge ass apartment in, in the middle of the city, mm-hmm. so I, I was not able to keep my animals there. So I was actually so lucky that my parents didn't use their basement, and they're only twenty minutes away from where I lived in the, in the city, so I was just. Meanwhile, I was studying and living in Copenhagen. I had my almost my entire collection at my parents' house uh, at that time. So that was uh, that was how I did that throughout the years. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, but of course, it it did it did mean that I had to go to my parents <laughs> once a while and maybe maybe too often, in my opinion, back then. But I know for a fact that my mother was very happy about it. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that I mean, your parents are clearly pretty forgiving. And then plus oh, they went to Guatemala with you. So they're super nice. They're super nice. They've been they've been very supportive of almost everything I've been doing regarding animals my entire life. You know, I, I don't think they have never told said no to me if I came and said, you know, I want a Burmese python when I was 12 years old. You know, they didn't say no. They just said, of course, how can we help you? <laughs> Are they animal course, people themselves? You have to earn money yourself, but, you know, they were, I cannot tell you how many times my father have helped me um, driving me around, picking up big wooden cages, uh, helping me lifting them up and down the stairs. Uh, down in the basement, back and forth again, building stuff for me. He's been just great all this time. So <laughs> I've been very fortunate to have uh, to have parents like that for sure. Does it rub off at all, or do they just deal with the snakes? Do they like them? <laughs> or? They have no idea. You know, <clears throat> I remember when I was doing some travels with the uh, with the studies I did and. Of course, I couldn't be back home uh, taking care of the animals meanwhile. So they've been used to 
taking care of like changing water dishes, spraying, you know, stuff that needed that, uh, whatever they, you know, as long as they didn't have to feed stuff, they were just, you know, have to help. And I do remember actually my mother feeding a tarantulas at some point. While <laughs> See, That's even I, I wouldn't feed a tarantula. I don't think so. Dude, I, I fucking hate tarantulas. And I kept like five of them back when I was a kid. And now I'm terrified of them. Really? <laughs> I'm not terrified of them, but I you know I just, those incentives, they can just, you know, fuck off. Yeah. I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't do that. Yeah, I Cent- haven't gotten to the point where, where centipedes I hold them or anything. Created by whoever did that. And it's just the same. Mm-hmm. Centipedes are so nasty. <laughs> yeah, I've I've never really gotten into arachnids or any type of bugs or it seems like people that go that route, they just like one, you know, the first day they have like one tarantula, fourteen days after they have like two hundred and fifty. It goes from like from zero to one million so fast with that that part of the hobby. It's like how would I ever run around feeding 500 arachnids in one day, man? No fucking way. No. And God forbid no. they reproduce and then you have like a million yeah, of them. I, uh, <laughs> that's not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> I do appreciate the wild and stuff like that. It's not that I hate them, but you know, it's not, it's not for me to keep That's for sure. It's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a reason at least for me personally that I keep snakes, you know, I feed mice. Super forgiving. So nice. Yeah, even I mean, you're going a step further with lizards and stuff. Things with four legs are hard to take care of. Yeah, but I, okay, okay. Then again, I do. I do travel a lot, um, and I, I'm actually trying to educate myself towards some nature con- con- uh, conservation. So I do have to take classes different places in the world, which means that uh, that I'm not able to be home to feed all my stuff all year year round which is the case that which is why i actually i actually don't send my money lists on loan because i do a lot of them i really like keeping them even though they're a lot of work but you know i just need to choose stuff that i can definitely keep on a weekly basis and that i know that i can get get some health to help to clean or feed while i'm gone so yeah absolutely that makes sense so I can do that with snakes and I can do that with beetles. It's that's not possible with you know six giant monozolicits. <laughs> right. So I mean you found a very um snake like lizard. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. They are pretty much just a uh, snake on legs. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. So we've reached two hours. Is there anything that you want to get out there? Um where people can reach you and stuff like that? Um, People can reach me on Facebook and on Instagram. I don't post a lot on, on Facebook and Instagram. I'm not in many groups, but you can find me. I'm always available. I love talking about stuff, even if it's, you know, herpetoculture as a thing in the wild or if it's, you know, in the private sector. I love to talk about everything. Uh, it's really my whole entire life. So I just love talking to other people that love, love the same thing as I do. So. You can reach me there. My full name is Casper uh, with a K and Christensen. Uh, and it's pretty straightforward. You can just reach me there. And if I can help you with anything regarding Pythons, 
pop on pythons whatever just hit me up and you know what's you have such a good first name that you could, you're like the reptile madonna like people can just say casper <laughs> and then they're like oh yeah i heard of that guy yeah you don't even need a last name my name's joe everyone's name is joe so yeah, there's no, there's almost no Joes in Denmark. That's for sure. I know, I, I think I know of one guy called Joey in Denmark. That's yeah, then I can move somewhere else. Then maybe, maybe that's my yeah. issue. But uh, you know, I've, I've I've heard a lot of of guys called Casper in the states, but it's mostly with the C. Yeah, I think I thought that there was actually another like Morelia person, Casper. With the C. <laughs> and I was, I. You think so? I don't know. I might be making shit up don't <laughs> probably probably just me <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> it was you yeah. i just didn't probably know know of yet I, but, uh, all over Morelia python you know the forums back then and all the facebook groups but i've been lately with all this facebook stuff it's not that i'm <laughs> scared of of you know people know shit about me it's not that but you know, I just respect the social media and I don't want to actually don't want to spend my entire time there and my entire life there. So I'm, I'm trying to really, you know, not be online all the time. Just, you know, maybe do it once in a while, check once a day or, you know, I don't have to post stuff all the time. So and I don't. I mean, it's super helpful and super productive, like for us as the community, but if you yeah. get too dark and too, sure. <laughs> it, it can get in your way real quick. Oh yeah. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. You can reach us at portcitypythons.com. Um, that's really it. If Melissa was, if, if, of course. Yeah. If Melissa was here, she would. You in Tinley someday or whenever I go to the States, that would be cool to meet up. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. sure. Whenever we're going to try to do Tinley. Huh? You're the same age almost. Yeah, there you go. And there's not much of that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, older people out there. I know Evan's listening and he's probably offended. That's all right. So, all right. I don't know how to end the show without Melissa here. So, thanks, guys. <laughs>